Good morning. It's good to worship together with you today. Regardless of what your plans are for the rest of the day, this is the best thing that you are going to do. Um, if you've got your Bible with you, go with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in a bunch of different spots today, but uh, Acts 6 can kind of be home base for us. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. Acts 6 is on page 914 of the Bibles that are on the chair racks there uh, in front of you that you can, you can use. And of course, if you don't have a Bible and you want to take that one home with you, by all means, take it home with you. We want you to have it. The Nazis would not like what we are about to do this morning. What, you might reasonably ask, are we going to do this morning that the Nazis would disapprove of, and why in the world are we talking about them in the first place? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because apparently Nazis did not like deacons. We know this because of uh, a historical event that uh, our oncoming, incoming deacons that we're going to be commissioning at the end of the service today, there's a book that we all read together uh, by Matt Smethers called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. And in that book, Smethers explains why Nazis did not like deacons. Apparently, in 1940, parts of the Netherlands came under control of the Nazi regime. And when that happened... Uh, there, were all, there was all sorts of different kinds of political oppression that were taking place. And the Dutch Reformed Church decided that they were going to serve these people who were being oppressed and so in their communities. And so the deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church decided that they were going to provide shelter, they were going to provide food, they were going to meet the needs of people who were particularly impacted by this. And as you can imagine, the Nazis did not like that. And because of that, their proposed solution to the Dutch Reformed Church was to eliminate the office of deacon. And the Dutch Reformed Church said, in essence, no way. At their next denominational meeting, they formed a resolution about this issue. And I'm going to read that resolution to you. It went this way. They said, whoever touches the diaconate, that's simply referring to the office of deacon. Uh, they said, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on deacons lays hands on worship. Now, that's stated in no uncertain terms, isn't it? For the Dutch Reformed Church, they saw that the properly function, functioning office of deacon was a non-negotiable in the life of their assemblies, and so they said, no thank you to the Nazis trying to decommission deacons' work in the church. They saw, and I believe were correct, about the importance of the role deacons play in the life of an assembly. And this morning, we're here to do a couple of things. We want to 
thank three outgoing deacons who have served us well for several years, and then we want to welcome in and commission for incoming deacons who are going to be serving with us for a period of time moving forward. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to do a little bit of teaching with you about deacons because my feel for things is that each one of us has, I suspect, a variety of different church experiences. For, for, the, for the majority of you, this is not the first church uh, that you have ever been a part of. Um, and so when we, when we think about the office of deacon and we ask ourselves questions about it, a lot of times when we think about their proper functioning, we're re- relating that to our own experiences, which of course there's nothing wrong with doing that. But we have to ask ourselves the question sometimes, ha- have our experiences been shaped by the culture of the church that we were in, or are those experiences shaped by Scripture? Now, the Bible doesn't give us a ton of information about deacons, and I believe that churches have the right, with as a matter of wisdom and prudence, to use deacons in a variety of ways, given we understand the underlying core commitments and teachings of what the Bible has to say about deacons. So, What I want to do today, before we commission these deacons, is do my best to get us all on the same page as for what exactly deacons are. So that's the first of four questions I want to ask. Number one, what is a deacon? And I want to give two answers to that question, what is a deacon? The first part of that answer is that a deacon is one of two biblical offices in the church. Two biblical offices in the church. We can see both of those offices addressed in the greeting of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 begins this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, a few things about this. There are three groups of people addressed in this greeting. Paul and and Timothy are addressing three groups of people. The first group of people that they are addressing are the saints. And depending on what kind of background you have, you might be tempted to think that saints are the super holy people that when they die, they get statues made out of them. But in actuality, the Bible teaches that every single Christian is a saint, And you may say, well, the Christians I know don't act like saints. And I would say, uh, no argument with you there. But all of us who have been born again, all of us who are followers of Jesus, without exception, are described as saints. But after addressing the saints, he then turns to address the overseers and the deacons. And overseer is just another word for a pastor, another word for an elder. The New Testament uses all three of those terms interchangeably. So whenever you see shepherd, pastor, overseer, elder, we're all talking about the same office. And then the other office it mentions obviously are deacons, and that brings me to the second answer to that question, what is a deacon? Well, it's one of two biblical offices, and in the second place, deacons are servants. Deacons are servants. If you were to translate the Greek word for deacon, the translation of that term would be servant. Now, let's make sure something is clear. That doesn't mean that other Christians aren't servants. 
that there's just a few unlucky ones that got to do everything. The Bible tells us that all of us who are in Christ are servants of Christ. Every one of us, without exception, are called to servanthood. When it distinguishes between the offices of overseer and deacon, it's not saying, the Bible is not saying that pastors are not intended to be servants. Pastors ought to be servants. But what it is saying is that there is a particular office in the church that is a a servant-oriented office. It's devoted to the formal service of the church. So that's what a deacon is. The second question I want to ask is, when did the office of deacon begin? When did the office of deacon begin? Now, most people looking at the Bible believe that, that the beginnings of the deacon office are found in Acts 6. Now, in Acts 6, the, the verb form of servant is used, but the term, the official term of the office is, is not used. But most people believe this is... These are kind of the prototype deacons that are informally brought about due to circumstances and then are formalized later in the church. Let me bring you briefly up to speed on what's happening in Acts chapter 6. I talked about this just a little bit last week, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Jesus resurrects. He ascends into heaven. All the, the apostles and the disciples are just waiting in Jerusalem because Jesus has said, I've got a mission for you to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but basically, don't move, don't even attempt this until the Spirit is poured out upon you. And so they wait, the Spirit is poured out, this is manifested in a variety of miraculous signs, and then other things happen. Literally thousands of people are turning to faith in Jesus. And you can imagine with an explosion of growth that takes place over just one or two or three days where your organization goes from from this size to increasing by thousands within a week, that's going to create some challenges, right? That's going to happen to any sort of organization of people of any kind. Growth always comes with challenges, and we see one of those first challenges in Acts 6. That's the setup for how we got here. Now, if you're there in Acts 6, let's read the first seven verses of that chapter together. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So I said, we're, have, we're seeing this explosion of growth in the Jerusalem church. Thousands of people are turning in faith to Jesus, but with growth comes challenges. And one of the first challenges that they face as a church is that there was a group of widows in the congregation who were being neglected by the church. And these widows, the Bible tells us, they raise a complaint about it, and the nature of this complaint is delicate. It's delicate for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, widows were among the vulnerable population in society, especially the older widows. They did not have social programs to fall back on. There were widows who, if they lost their husband and were not able to remarry, there were very limited opportunities for them to provide for themselves. If they did not have family taking care of them, many of them became destitute. So you'll see this emphasis through, throughout the, the Bible and throughout the New Testament, even in the, even in the letters, there's, there's the importance of taking care of people like widows. So this is a delicate situation because you have part of the vulnerable members of the church raising their hand and saying, we're being totally left out. You're, provi- you're making provision for, for, for some of the widows, but not us. So this is already, this is already bad. It's made worse by the fact that as these widows are looking at their situation, they're saying, I wonder why we are being left out and they are being cared for because there seems to be a clear difference between them and us. And that clear difference between them and us was that the widows who were being neglected, and there's, there's no indication in, in the text that this was an intentional neglect on anyone's part. But they're being neglected because they are Hellenists. They are Greek widows. The Hebrew widows seem to be being cared for just fine. The Greek widows seem to be being left out. So this is delicate not only because they're being left out, but because there's a high-tension moment here. There seems to be a somewhat racial component going on here. So make no mistake about it. This is a crisis moment for this church. This is a crisis moment. The decisions that were going to be made in this moment were critical for the the church moving forward with the vision that God had intended for it. Now, I want to say in just a moment how the church didn't respond to this situation. But before I tell you how the church didn't respond to this situation, I want to make sure you understand that when I say the things that I'm about to say, the two things about the things I'm about to say. Number one, I'm going to say this without any intended snarkiness whatsoever. Uh, I love snarkiness. Really love it. But I have found, and it's taken me a long time, uh, half my life, to find out that snark generally doesn't win arguments. Uh, It scores points for people who already agree with you. (laughs) So I'm going to say the things that I'm uh, about to say uh, without any sort of, of, of snark intended at all. The second thing I want to say is, if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about and the things that I'm about to say, don't even worry about it. It doesn't matter. Okay, so those, those are the two things. doesn't matter. But let me tell you what they didn't do. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem did not decide to write a series of 
articles and blogs and podcasts to educate the church family on the differences between sympathy and empathy. They didn't say, this is a perfect opportunity for us to educate everyone on this, to to draw a really fine distinction between these two things and say that one is bad and the other one is good. They did not do that. A second thing they did not do is say, somehow, remember, I'm saying this without snark, they did not say, these widows seem to have gotten a hold of a bunch of resources about critical race theory. And I've heard on the news that that's bad, and I think they're doing it. They did not do that. Rather than accusing these widows, playing the race card, rather than taking these widows and saying, why did you have to make it about that? They organized to address the complaint And the Bible even gives us hints about how they organize to address the complaint. They chose seven people whose names I stumbled over, all of them. Nobody names their kids most of those things anymore. Stephen and Philip are great, uh, but the rest of them are troublesome. But every commentator writing on this passage points out that every single one of these names is a Greek name. Because they want to ensure that these widows have representation among the leadership and so that they are cared for. That's the situation. That's the historical situation from which these people arise. Now, that leads me to the third question. What are the qualifications for a deacon? What are the qualifications for a deacon? I've already said that these apostles and these church leaders decide that the complaint needs to be addressed, and they picked people who just happened to have Greek names, but they didn't just say, let's find some Greek people to help with this. They needed to find a particular kind of Greek people, qualified Greek people to do it. And verse 3 tells us that there there were three particular qualities that they were looking for. First, verse 3 tells us they needed those people to have, they needed to be men of good repute. So to be a person of good repute is to be a person who has a good reputation. We talk about the fact sometimes that a person's reputation precedes them, which means that oftentimes people will know things about you before they know you. And those can be positive things based on what they can hear and see of you, or those can be negative things. Now, I want to be careful to say, because we are sinful people, we often form negative opinions about people on very little data. Can I underline that for you again? That's not part of the message. We often form negative opinions of people on about this much data. We should stop doing it. But I go on. They wanted to choose people who, are, who had a good reputation. And when it's talking about good reputation, it's talking about character. These people needed to have reputation of, of having good, a, a good character. 
And one of the reasons that they needed to have reputation of having a good character is because they were not just going to be people who were going to, to give handouts. These are people who are going to be having difficult conversations with vulnerable people who feel as if they have been slighted. You can't throw that task at just anyone. You need to have the kind of person that, can have, that has the reputation to have that conversation skillfully. Now, I've talked about this in my interviews with each of our deacons that will be commissioning this morning. I've used this exact passage of Scripture to say that, that while we need people to, to do organizational things just in the day-to-day operations of our church, we are not just looking for people who can fill out a schedule in a spreadsheet. We need people who have the kind of reputation that could step into delicate situations and handle those situations well. The kinds of people who don't have the reputation of being keyboard warriors. And we all know who those people are. Constant stream of posting. And if there's an argument to be found, they will have it. Someone needs to be corrected. Those are not the kinds of people that can serve in this capacity. And the reason those people can't serve in that capacity is because they have a reputation. We need people who have a reputation to be able to handle, listen, and care for a wide variety of experiences and do it skillfully, with grace, and with love in a way that preserves the unity of the church. So the first guideline is that these people need to have a good reputation. And that reputation, that character is probably where it's, where it's introduced informally here is probably formalized for us in the qualifications for the office of deacon that are listed for us in 1 Timothy 3. We're not going to have the time to read those right now, but what's informally done here is probably formalized there. So they need to have a good reputation. The second thing, they need to be people who are full of the Spirit, Full of the Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Does that mean that you could imagine our church as people uh, uh, who are, are, are glasses that have varying amounts of the Spirit poured into them? That might be, the, that might be what we are tempted to, to, to read when we hear that phrase, being full of the Spirit, because maybe some people are full of the Spirit and some aren't. But one of the things the Bible tells us is if you're in Christ, if you have been converted, if you have been saved, all of you have all the Spirit. Nobody is missing out on some of the Spirit. You all have all of, all of the Spirit, which is an amazing thing in and of itself that we won't keep exploring. However, however, to be full of the Spirit is to be aligned with the direction the Spirit is taking us and the fruit the Spirit is producing in us. So we might ask the question, what would be, how would we know if someone is full of the Spirit? What kinds of people should we be looking for if we need people who are full of the Spirit? Well, thankfully, the Bible answers that question very well. In Galatians chapter 5, the Bible tells us that people 
who are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit are people who are being characterized by an increasing love, an increasing joy, an increasing peace, an increasing patience, an increasing kindness, an increasing goodness, an increasing faithfulness, an increasing gentleness, and an increasing self-control. Not people who are angry, bitter, cantankerous, get stuff done, hard to work with. No, people who are full of the Spirit look like that. And the reason those people don't always stand out is because we don't want people who are full of the Spirit. We want heroes. We want leader types. We want all sorts of things that often aren't what the Bible says we should be looking for. People who are full of the Spirit, whose, whose lives are characterized by these qualities are people that Galatians goes on to say are people who are keeping in step with the Spirit. Galatians tells us, keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means the Spirit is setting a trajectory of these things for all of our lives. And as we move away from love and joy and peace and gentleness and these good qualities, we are moving outside the trajectory, of the, uh, outside the trajectory that the Spirit is setting for us. So they said, select people who are full of the Spirit, whose lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, whose, whose, whose life pathway arc could be described as keeping in step with the Spirit's direction. Thirdly, these, they needed to select people who were full of wisdom. Many times we think whether we're looking at leaders or whether we are leaders, we're thinking that being a leader in any capacity means having the answers. Nothing scares me more than a person who thinks they should be a leader because they think they have the answers. Life is complicated. You deal with people and problems, you quickly find out that your black and white thing that you studied and thought you could just lay on somebody, they don't fit the mold for some reason, no matter how hard we press. That's true of your own life. It's true of others' lives. And I can't tell you how many times we come to, to situations and things where I'm just asking, my question, asking myself the question, what, what do we do here? Wisdom is not, boom, you ask me any question, I've got the answer. I can tell you exactly what you can do. Thank God that there are people that have a skill at that. But wisdom has been defined at, at one time or another as the skillful application of knowledge. People who are full of wisdom are people who know what God has revealed and have a skill at saying, okay, here's a difficult situation. It's not black and white, but here are the principles that need to guide us here are the decisions that we are going to try to make to best respond to the situation. Those are the kinds of people that are full of wisdom. And when you take a person who has good character, is full of the Spirit, is wise, you have a recipe for someone 
who is going to cause the flourishing of the body of Christ. That leads me to the fourth and final question that I want us to ask this morning. What then are deacons supposed to do? What are deacons supposed to do? And here's where we find that there are, uh, again, a wide variety of ideas of what exactly it is that deacons are supposed to do based on our experiences. So some of us come to church with a model of deacons are a, a governing body that, is, uh, that, that provides separation of powers, that provides checks and balances. So just like we've got separation of powers in our government system uh, that provides checks and balances, deacons make sure that the elders don't get out of control, and the elders make sure that the deacons don't get out of control. And if you keep that balance of power together, everything works okay. That's a, that's a cultural idea. And it, it's not bad in saying anything about our political system and doing that. But that's not necessarily something the Bible calls us to apply to the church. What we see in the New Testament is, is elders and deacons working harmoniously together for the same goals. For some, deacons are business types that have the real-world experience to get stuff done since pastors don't know any of that stuff. These poor guys go to seminary. They spend all this time learning ancient languages that no one speaks or reads anymore, somebody has got to know how to make a spreadsheet around here. And there's some truth to that. (laughs) But when the Bible tells us to identify deacons, it's not simply looking for kind of business-minded people to make sure that the business of the church goes forward. We need those kinds of people. But that's not what it is. For others, being a deacon can be a stepping stone to the more significant or or greater office of pastor. So I start here in the deacon role, but I'm using it as a stepping stone to, to something else. But that's not necessarily the case. And then for others, deacons are people who are good with their hands. They can fix stuff. And my goodness, these poor pastors have no marketable skills whatsoever. So if something breaks, it's going to stay broken, and we're going to look at it wondering what somebody should do or what we ought to do. It's like when, I, it's like when my car breaks down, and I open it up, and I look in the hood, and I think to myself, I don't even know why I'm looking. I don't know what any of these things are. I can put power steering fluid in the van because it keeps running out, and so I know how to pour that stuff in. Uh, and I can check the oil, too, and I can pour more of that in. And that's it. It's over. So deacons are people that know something valuable. (laughs) So people often select deacons based on that. Now, while there are all of these perspectives have aspects of truth to them and are are attempts to, to meet a variety of needs, I don't think even just based on our reading in Acts chapter 6 that any of those ought to provide the model for what it is that we're looking for when it comes to what deacons are supposed to do. Now, I believe I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to, give to you from, uh, that, from Matt Smethers book that we've all read, that the deacons and I have all read together, I'm going to give you three categories, and I believe there's a lot of freedom within these parameters, but these are, these are categories that I think are, are biblical categories based on the little bit of data that we have in the Bible. 
The first responsibility of deacons is to spot and meet tangible needs. Spot and meet tangible needs. And when I say that, spot and meet tangible needs, I want to make sure I provide a corrective before we get too off course. You'll hear it said sometimes that elders take care of the spiritual needs of the church and deacons care for the physical needs of the church. One of the problems with that is that that we we are integrated beings. Our spiritual needs are related to our physical needs and our physical needs are related to our spiritual needs. We are foolish to think that you could just touch one without having impact on the other. I don't think that's necessarily a a biblical understanding, physical versus spiritual needs. And even in the example that we have for us in Acts 6, there's there's a physical need that is connected to a very deeply spiritual problem that's going on. So I don't think we want to make that kind of divider between physical and spiritual and, and, and what elders and deacons do. Furthermore, while deacons are often responsible for caring for and, and making staying organized in physical needs of the church, it's not like we just need people to set up chairs or take down chairs. There's no, there, that, that's valuable work. But it's not like that's the quality, can you carry a chair? Okay, great. You're in. Your chair-carrying resume is impressive. Stephen is introduced to us as one of these deacons. And what's the very next story in the book of Acts? What is it? Stephen gets stoned to death. You don't get stoned to death for carting chairs around. You get stoned for a biblical stand. And one of the things that we see Stephen do before he is put to death is is we see him preach a brilliant message to everyone that's listening, reflecting that he has a deep understanding of how everything in the Old Testament connects to Jesus. He is a spiritual man who is full of wisdom. We meet Philip in this list of deacons, and we saw this last week in Acts chapter 8. Where do we find Philip just two chapters later? Well, now he's been pushed out because of persecution, and now he's being referred to as Philip the Evangelist, and he's leading people in Samaria, all over Samaria, to Jesus. He's encountering a magician who wants to buy buy what he's doing, see if he can franchise it. These are not spiritual lightweights by any stretch of the imagination. They are godly individuals who who serve the church by spotting and meeting these tangible needs that are almost always inevitably connected to spiritual needs. Secondly, deacons are to protect and promote church unity. Protect and promote church unity. I've said this already this morning, but I'll say it again. The problem in Acts 6 was not primarily a physical need. Wise leaders see the presenting problem, and they ask a question. Is there an underlying issue to the presenting problem? 
The presenting problem here was not just physical need, though that was important, but the underlying need was one that was going to have great impact on the future of the people of God. As, is it going to be a, a body, as the New Testament describes it, is it going to be a body that transcends ethnic, political, social, and economic boundaries? The question that was really being asked is who's valuable in the church? Is it the people who can produce? Or is it the people who provide a drain on resources? Of course, they're more than that. But if you're just looking at it as a numbers thing, a drain on resources. And the resounding answer that the leadership gives to the question who is valuable is everyone, without exception. And we want to make sure that that is abundantly clear. The end time vision for the church is kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation gathering, gathered around the throne. If, if the church trips here, they are out of step with the desire, Christ's desired end for his church. That's what's at stake. Thirdly, they are to serve and support the ministry of the elders. Now, you'll see there in Acts chapter 6, in verse 4, that these men are chosen so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So that might cause us to ask the question, okay, wait a minute. Are, are the apostles and other ch church leaders here saying what we're doing is more important than that? Because one of the, the way it's phrased in our, in our Bibles, it says, well, we don't want to give up the, the ministry of the Word to wait tables. And it could sound like they're saying, uh, I don't do that. I've got to pray. I would love to help you, but I've got a whole day of praying. And so you're out. <laughs> or... I would love to help you person in need, but I'm a Bible studier. That's what I do. That's not what the text is saying to us. What the text is telling us is that both of these things were priorities. The church and the leaders of the church could easily get bogged down in the logistics of widow care, which would cause the neglect of prayer and the ministry of the Word. If you lose prayer and the ministry of the Word, you lose the whole thing. So, so they're stating that prayer and the ministry of the Word is essential. But on the other side of the coin, you can't say you're too busy with prayer and the ministry of the Word to meet the needs of these people who are in desperate circumstances. What the church is telling us here is not that one of these things is more important than the other or that one group of people who meets these needs is more important than the other, but that both of these things are priorities and the church needs to organize to do both. That's what the text is telling us. So deacons work hand in hand with the ministry of the elders to ensure that both priorities that the New Testament happen. This is why the Dutch Reformed Church considered deacons a non-negotiable. 
in the life of the church and were willing to defy the Nazi party over it. Now let me conclude this way this morning. The role of deacon is one where, when properly defined, is not one that we're necessarily going to see as, ooh, that's a glamorous job. Wait a minute, so, you get, so I get to be a servant? Tell me more. Who aspires to being a servant? Philippians, the book that opens by addressing deacons specifically, tells us that Jesus actually does. It describes Jesus in the very next chapter in exactly those terms, and it calls us to do the same. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, of just doing a compressed uh, uh, version of these, these verses, an abbreviated version of these verses, but it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. One of, the, one of the arguments that Jesus referees with his own disciples, we read about on a couple of different occasions through the Gospels, who's going to be the greatest? And, and what, one of the things that Jesus tells them is this argument about who's going to be the, the greatest is reflective, disciples, that you have more of the culture's values in you than you think and less of my values in you than you realize. And Jesus says, I am among you as he who serves. To be a, above the role of a servant is to be above Jesus. If you're with us this morning and you are not a Christian, or you've never heard, never heard Jesus described as a servant before, then we want you to understand that the Bible most certainly in numerous places and out of Jesus' own mouth describes him as a servant. And that shouldn't take us by surprise because prophecies in the book of Isaiah described him as a suffering servant. The Bible tells us that Jesus empties himself he takes the form of a servant, and he took on human form precisely so that he could serve us by dying on the cross for our sins. One of the hard things for us to, to come to grips with when we come to Christ is the fact that there's not much we can bring. It makes us uncomfortable the imagery of Jesus kneeling down, washing his disciples' feet. And Peter's like, hey, no. That makes us uncomfortable. Because we want to do something. You know, you go to somebody's house and like, I at least need to bring them a candle. I, I don't do that. <laughs> I wonder if there's a Yankee candle on the way. <laughs> so I have something to give them. But we, we do. We stumble over the message of the gospel because the go message of the gospel is you don't bring anything except your sin. We want to need Jesus, but not that bad. We want Jesus to help us, but it makes us uncomfortable 
to think of a Jesus who would wash her feet. And yet he says, I'm among you as he who serves. And if you've never heard of that Jesus, can I encourage you, read the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, get to know that Jesus. Because what we want is for you to put your faith in that Jesus. We want you to see that Jesus is among us as him who serves, that he gave himself as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to our Heavenly Father. All God's saints are called to be servants. But some of us occupy a formal office of servanthood. These people are gifts to the church, and we want to give thanks for them. So here's what we want to do in the last few minutes that we we have together today. The first thing I want to do is just recognize the deacons that have served faithfully for for several years uh, here at our church in a variety of ways and and behind the scenes in ways that no one sees. Um, You know, a couple of them are out of town today, uh, serving at other places in our ministry right now or at the first service. And so I don't think any of them are with us today, but I just want to thank uh, Sam Farthing. Oh, Philip's here. Sorry, I forgot you, Philip. Philip, are you here? Oh, you're right there. Okay. I made you, I made you have to raise your hand a little bit. Philip's right there. Don't, I don't want to draw attention to him, but he's in the third row. He's on the very outside aisle. Um, and Philip has, has been uh, at our church much longer than, than I've, I've been here. And he's served faithfully as a deacon. He's going to be rolling off for a spell. And we just want to uh, thank him for that. Uh, Sam Farthing has served. David Rufinaw has served as a deacon as well. We have little gifts that we want to give them just as as thanks for their serving our our body the way they have. The next thing we want to do is uh, is commission our new incoming deacons. And so can I have our four deacons come up here and join me? Uh, We did this in the first service. I, I have them stand on the step below me so that I have a chance to match height. And then Scott Gabbert comes up and still can dunk on me. So I was wanting to make him stand on the third step uh, to make me feel better about myself, but he's still towering over me. Come, come in so we're all in camera here. Um, so we are very thankful that God has provided uh, these deacons to serve our church in a variety of ways. This is something that we have been talking about for months now. We've given you materials to read about that. We have been Uh, reading a book together with them, meeting with them, doing interviews with them to find out their heart. And I am very thankful that God has provided these four individuals who have that kind of heart. Um, What we talked about today, the kind of qualities that they have, um, are are the kind of qualities that I think the Bible would have us be looking for. Of course, they're not perfect. Um, None of us are. Um, We want We want those kinds of qualities in increasing measure, as the Bible says, Uh, but we do know that that is their heart, and so we want to present them to you today so that you can see them and know that we, that these are, uh, in many ways, see this as as God's graciousness to us and kindness to to help us in the ways that we have outlined in the message today. You may have noticed this. I didn't call it out when we were reading through Acts chapter 6, but you may have noticed but one of the things they do after they select the people who are going to serve as deacons is they, the Bible says they lay hands on them and pray for them. 
And so we want to do that. We want to recognize that what they're doing is, is first and foremost spiritual work. We want to recognize that it's a, there's a spiritual battle going on around us that when churches grow, they experience opposition, they experience challenges. And so we, we need God's help. You don't necessarily have to pray to ask God to help you stack chairs. You do have to pray and ask God to help you do what the Bible tells us deacons do. And so we want to, um, I want to lead us in a, a prayer for them. And I want to, I can only lay hands on two of them, so I'm going to lay hands on two of them this morning. And let's pray together and commission them for the task that God has given them. Lord, we are grateful that you would show us this grace and kindness as a church family. That you would give us people who desire not the spotlight, but to, who desire to be among us as those who serve. I pray that you would strengthen them for the task. They are going to encounter spiritual warfare in their own lives. We will continue to experience opposition in our church. I pray that you'd help them to remember and help us to remember that our enemy is ultimately not flesh and blood, but spiritual. I pray that because of this spiritual battle, you would fight our battles for us. I pray that you would help these deacons to be individuals who who are able to meet the needs, help meet the needs of congregation, who protect the unity of our church, who work together with the elders so that we have a place that though it is imperfect in so many ways, it is still a, a church that brings you glory. And I pray that your strength would be um, manifest and visible and perfected in our weaknesses. So we, we, we give them to you. We pray that you would strengthen them for the task, that you would make us all better for it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. You can be seated.